0: think, but trusting God. God's message is also always in Isaiah a message of judgment but also a message of hope as well we must always make that clear uh, to people the gospel that we preach is the gospel of good news it's not the gospel of judgment uh, though there, there is a part of it that is that but it is a gospel of hope um and so Isaiah preaches uh, this message and he shares with uh, people um and so we come to the end of chapter 8 And what's happened here, just to give you the context, uh, Isaiah was writing in that the the Israelites had been taken into slavery after Assyria had invaded the northern kingdom of uh, uh, Israel. So Isaiah chapter 8 simply ends quite. Dark and gloomy because um, the people had really sought wisdom from everybody but God. They hadn't trusted in God. Uh, God had told them that this was coming. Uh, and so they were simply looking everywhere uh, for their answers, but they were blaming God for the problem that they were, were in. And Isaiah is now trying to show the rulers of Judah, remember the two king, kingdoms, Israel and Judah, that he's trying to show the rulers of Judah the mistake they were making simply by trusting in assyria they were trying to come to a compromise with them so they wouldn't be invaded uh, like the israelites were and uh, I, I was simply saying listen it's uh, you know de- de- compromise is the same as defeat You know, you've got to trust in God. And and God always presents people with choices. And he gives Isaiah these words to say in chapter 8 when he describes the choices once again that Isaiah was offering Judah. Don't choose the flood instead of a peaceful river. Don't choose the snare instead of the sanctuary. Don't choose the darkness instead of the light. And so chapter 8 of Isaiah ends quite gloomy. But chapter 9 prophesies, uh, bright hope. And we're going to read the verses here. He, he says this, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea Beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts." And so we come to the end of that passage there and really just to give a little bit more context there to help us that the the northern tribes that I mentioned there of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first really to suffer uh, from the Assyrian invasion. But it's interesting that Isaiah has uh, an absolute ton to say about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ coming and and many, many prophecies in Isaiah speak of who Jesus is and and the things that he's going to do. In Matthew 4 verse 12 to 17 Jesus actually repeats this prophecy that we're reading here because it says, now when Jesus heard that Judah, John had been put in prison he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is by by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason I've said all of that now, just as a way of introduction, just to get into this, and you will have heard me say this before, because this is a theme that runs through the whole of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is the fulfiller and fulfilment of all God's promises. That all the prophecies that we read in the Old Testament are revealed in the New. We look at the New Testament, and we can see uh, the, the Old Testament. The Gospel confirms, the Gospels confirm that Jesus is the Messiah The one that Isaiah spoke about 700 years before, the anointed one, the chosen one. He is the coming deliverer who would one day lead God's people to joy, peace, righteousness. And justice. We, we say all of this because the Bible suddenly wasn't put together in a sense, book by book, and God sort of looked at it as he went along and thought that bit will fit there, and this bit will fit there, and that bit will explain. Now, the Bible is just a seamless book from beginning to end, where we see the promises of God and the prophecies of God fulfilled. And nowhere is that clearer than in the passage that we've read this morning when Isaiah speaks about the Messiah coming. Even though it's 700 years down the line before it comes, that that fulfillment is going to happen. Uh, I read this quote and I thought this was very interesting. It says, the Old Testament contains over 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Computations using the science of probability on just eight of these prophecies show the chance that someone could have fulfilled all eight prophecies as 10 to the 17th power or one in a hundred quadrillion. Now that probably doesn't make sense to you at 10 to 11 on a Sunday morning, which is fair enough, didn't make much sense to me when I read it, but it just shows the fascination of the incredible plan that God... Just to give you an idea, we all understand what a million is, and we all understand what a billion is, and we all understand what a trillion is. Well, a quadrillion is one after that. Uh, Just to give you an idea, this is one quadrillion. That's just one quadrillion. And you see from the quote that we've just mentioned, the chances of all of these prophecies being fulfilled, that's just eight of them, actually, just eight out of the 300... Uh, is, is those are the odds now, now we're obviously not going to talk about bookmakers and betting because we're in church and stuff. But the point that I'm trying to make is these promises are fulfilled. We see the Bible not just from front to back, but from back to front; not just from beginning to end, but from the end to the beginning as well. And no more do we see this in the story of Jesus and what God has done in calling His Son. God is telling Isaiah to say the words that. He's Saying here, because he wants to have, he wants the people to have hope. It's not just about the judgment; it's about the hope that is coming as well. That God has a plan, and even those people, even these people, have rebelled against God and have turned away from God. God still has a plan, and so we see this seamless run all the way through the Bible. Just another quote before we get back into the the story: it says the early church had nothing but the Old Testament. The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, the Old Testament lies open in the New. Why do I say this? Because we need both. Often hear people say, and some people have said, I'm a New Testament Christian. Do you really need the Old Testament? Let me tell you something you need the whole Bible. You want to understand the whole Bible and God revealed, and in everything that He is and everything He has done, you see it all the way through Scripture. The first gospel message is in Genesis chapter 3, it says, all the way through Scripture, it pieces itself. Together and it flows seamlessly from beginning to end. And we see this here in this story of the Messiah. You know, it would be 700 years before Jesus came as a man in the power of perfect teaching and of signs and wonders beginning in the dark region. Of Galilee. There's one important thing we must understand about prophecy, that if somebody prophesies something, you know, A, they're a prophet, and you know that the prophecy is true when it's fulfilled. I know I've stated the obvious there, but a lot of people run around telling everybody else they're prophets and they can see things and do things and all of that. Listen, the test of a prophet is this, is when they say something uh, that they believe is from God, it is then fulfilled. You see, uh, Isaiah says this in verse 2, Uh, He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus fulfills this in John 8, verse 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He says, so now some people will argue that Jesus just went around really. He knew the Old Testament, so he thought, oh, you know, maybe if I spoke this word here, that would fulfill that word in the Old Testament. Yeah, he could have possibly done that with two or three things. I don't think he could do that with, with 300 of them. And some of the other ones where it was spoken of in Micah, where Jesus was born, I don't think Jesus had any control over where he was born, and uh, none of us had any control over where we were born. Who well, did we? I mean, I was born in Birmingham. People were born here in Belfast. I was obviously very fortunate, you know, to be born (laughs) where I was, but we have no choice over that. So even if Jesus did read it as the Messiah and say, well, I can match that fulfillment. He couldn't do that with 300 and even more. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen anointed one. In Luke chapter four, Jesus returns from the temptation in the desert. And he reveals himself first in the synagogue, where in Galilee, and reads Isaiah 61. Jesus comes back from being tempted in the desert. He stands in the synagogue. The first sermon he preaches is from Isaiah, to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 61. It simply says he has anointed me. In this prophecy, the Messiah announced that he came to heal. The fivefold damage that sin brings. Sin does great damage, so there must be a great work of redemption. What did Jesus say that he came to do? To preach the gospel to the poor. Sin impoverishes people's lives, not just in a material sense, but in every sense. Uh, And the Messiah brings good news to the poor. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. Sin breaks hearts and the Messiah has good news for the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captive, sin makes people captive and enslaves them and the Messiah comes to set them free. The recovery of sight to the blind. Sin blinds us and the Messiah comes to heal our spiritual and moral blindness. Sin sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Sin oppresses its victims, and the Messiah comes to bring liberty to the oppressed. 700 years before Jesus arrives and preaches this message, Isaiah is already sharing it in Isaiah chapter 9 when he says this is the hope that the world has been waiting for. The advantage of reading the Bible is not just a book to be read from the front to the back, but also from the back to the front, but also to read stories like Jesus preached is here and to see where the plan of it was in the Old Testament. Jesus is totally different from anybody who has ever come before. All the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, came to preach deliverance. They came to preach a message. Jesus is totally different because he didn't come to only preach deliverance or even to only bring deliverance. Jesus came to be deliverance for us. That's where the quote that I said is both the fulfiller and the fulfillment of all God's promises. It wasn't just about the words that he spoke and everybody says, what an amazing teacher he is. It was also about the the fact, the demonstration, the truth that he laid down his life for each and every one of us as, as the Messiah. And so he came to be deliverance for us. But Isaiah here, going back to the verses that we read, he speaks about this here in the early verses because he's speaking to the people who are held in captivity. And Isaiah looks back to the story of Gideon, but also the Exodus from Egypt, where you can see the mirror, the story of the Exodus in Egypt can be mirrored in the story of Jesus. And, and the Old Testament writers, Isaiah in particular, would always take, encourage the people to look back. The reason he got the people to look back was simply this. God was faithful yesterday but they had lost their faithfulness in a sense for God today, in a sense, that they didn't believe God was going to be faithful to them today. You see, we know God is faithful today to us because God has been faithful to us yesterday. It's almost like we're building that up in the bank of our spiritual faith. How do I know God is faithful? He says, because he has been faithful. He has been faithful past tense. In the present tense, is God faithful? Yes, in the future tense, Will God be faithful? Absolutely. But Isaiah looks back to the story of Gideon where he mentions uh, Midian, but also the Exodus in Egypt. And he mentions some things. He talks about the yoke, The burden the rod the oppressor because we know that they were bound by slavery in egypt but also in the story of gideon that there was no way that gideon could have won his battle had god not been on his side and he uses this as an example of what the messiah will bring because he talks about the yoke That is suffering endured. He talks about the burden which is suffering carried. He talks about the rod which is suffering inflicted. He talks about the oppressor which is suffering at the hands of another. And he talks about the staff which is suffering without hope. And all of these things Jesus came to take away, to lift the yoke, to take away the burden, to take away the suffering that has been inflicted. This is what the Messiah did. And you see, no matter how bad it is, God tells Isaiah to tell the people, remember when you look back, that the foundational act of God in redemption is this truth. You are my people, and I am your God. That's the truth that is coming out here in the story that Isaiah was sharing. No matter how bad the suffering gets, no matter how many people invade you, the despair is, please remember this truth. You are my people and I am your God. And even though they have chosen their own way rather than God's way, trusting in human wisdom and they have faced the consequence of a nation being plunged into darkness, God has allowed them to do it because it's often, it's times in people's sinfulness and despair and brokenness that that he can raise them up. That often at times, and we've we've heard people say this, I I had to hit rock bottom before God could do something with me. Well, why do we hit rock bottom? Because we simply have to take away all our power in a sense that we can make the changes that need to be changed. We simply have to be stripped of everything that can transform our life other than God. And so God allows them. He doesn't ever wish to to simply destroy. Because often at times I hear people talk about the the garden, you know, the, the wrath of God coming and stuff. Listen, God's desire is not to destroy people. God's desire is to give people second chances. But there will come a point where there will be no more second chances. But up until that point where there is no more opportunity for second chances, it says uh, God is a God of second chances. He is a God of judgment, but he is also a God of hope. And we've got to remember in the book of Isaiah, in the 66 chapters that there is, the first 39 chapters are heavy on judgment on what the people have to choose. But the last 27 chapters are chapters of hope. They're talking about with Jackie, he shared some this morning standing at the table. Uh, and, and they're chapters of hope, and we have to remember that. You see, when, when Isaiah mentions these things here, he simply says this is uh, the reference to every warrior's boot and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And I wonder why, why write this? Often at times we read the second part of this chapter, particularly at Christmas, but I wondered, well, what did all that mean? The garments rolled in blood, used for burning, fuel for fire, it simply means the battle is over. This was what was happened when the battle was finished and you had won. You took the garments and the blooded boots and everything off the enemy soldiers that you de- defeated and you threw them in the fire and, and they were burnt. Uh, and this is a picture here, the, the, the each of these promises, the breaking of the yoke of his burden, the rod of the oppressor. The complete victory over all enemies. It has a spiritual application for Jesus' work in our lives today. These things are ours in Jesus. Isaiah not only speaks of the Messiah coming 700 years later, he speaks of the truth of what the Messiah will do from that point when he arrives, right up until this point today, that our burdens can be lifted, that our yokes can be taken away, that our suffering can be eased, because it's all that we have in Jesus when we apply these things. It's no wonder Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in the past, in the present, and there in the future. But the prophesying of the Messiah here, it reveals some some truths. And we'll just share these quickly. The first one is this. God has not and will not forget them. God has not forgotten you this morning. It says, whatever it is you're going through, whether you're on your own or you feel that God is silent, He's never absent, it says, God does not or will not forget them, and God has not and will not forget you this morning. The second thing is this God has, does not give up on rebellious nations. And the third one is this, so true that God wants to reside his kingdom. There is no one that is too far away from God's love. There is no one, how much they have rebelled, uh, that God cannot reach them. There is no nation in this world that God has given up on. There was no community, there was no group of people that God has given up on because he does not give up on rebellious nations Uh, And so here we see that this is God's plan. It reveals some truth that Jesus wasn't coming as the Messiah just for the Jews. He was coming for the Gentiles, which represents every nation, which represents everybody. And so it tells us us this. And, And we see that a son is given for God so loved the world that he gave and the government will be on his shoulder simply the entitlement to rule. you know every government is only as good as its leaders the pharaoh of Egypt enslaved the people to build the pyramids The Assyrians were known for their depths of brutality, leaving bodies everywhere. The Greeks were known for their defilement, the search of pleasure. The Romans conquered half the world as killing machines. The, The United States wanted to establish a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Communism wanted to force sharing so no one would be better off than anyone else. In a sense, there was no perfect rule of government, but actually there is. We read it here. It's the government that Jesus will come and lead and rule by one day because each government is only as good or bad as the king's moral character. Our king is Jesus, his character is perfect, and we expect his government to be the one that blesses everybody and does what he promises to do. This king, this Jesus, this Messiah, was ushering in the promised kingdom of God, declaring the love of God through the message of God. Isaiah goes on, and just in these last uh, few minutes, he talks about different character traits of the Messiah. We can't go through them all, but there is one I want to pick on that I think is relevant for us this morning, which he calls him the Prince of Peace. You know, the saving power of his death and resurrection makes it possible for us, firstly, to have peace with God, being reconciled to him. Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Messiah came to do, to give us peace between God and ourselves. He wants to instill the peace of his own rule in our souls. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this to the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then the third thing we see is peace. He wants us to surrender to his will, submit to his word, that he will bring us inner rest as we allow. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And we see there a picture of what the Messiah comes to bring. Isaiah writes these words in chapter 9. He says the Messiah, Jesus Christ, fulfills them when he arrives as a a man. He goes to the cross as our Savior and he's risen again. We're an extension of that as we read these words today, realizing that we can have all the things that just the Prince of Peace offers this morning. You see, his peace helps us. Today, with all of those things, he wants that peace to rule in our hearts. That peace justifies us with God this morning. It makes us right this morning, all because of what the Prince of Peace has done. And so this morning we come, and in our conclusion is this. We see this wonderful message that Isaiah preaches on the Messiah this morning, the chosen one the anointed one who has come to bring the good news, the good news that allows us to come and do what we do, this morning, the good news that allows us to worship this morning, the good news that allows us to remember what He's done for us. God has a plan and it spans centuries, it spans hundreds of years, it spans thousands of years because God is still in control, has not forgotten His people, and there is still hope for me and you this morning. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Father God. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. We come this morning. And Father, you know the circumstances and the situations, Father, that each and every person face today. And God, in the verses that we read, Father, they span hundreds of years before the promise is fulfilled. Father, for us today that hold on to you, for us today that are believing for promises to be fulfilled, God, would you fulfill them today, Lord? You are still in control. You have not forgotten each and every one of us. We hold on to you today because as we've sung already this morning, hope has a name and his name is Jesus. And Father, we hold on to that hope It never gets too dark and too despairing and too depressing that we cannot hold on to that name and sing that name and worship that name. And so, Father, we say thank you this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.